0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe.
2: This is Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner Circle Network in conjunction with the Sampson Family Foundation, striving to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. Now here's Ralph and your host, Mac McDonald. Welcome in center court with Ralph Sampson. I'm Mac
3: McDonald. It's another week and a lot of boy, a lot of hot topics, Ralph, and we're gonna dive into free agency today and where free agency really started. Uh, it and it began with some very big names. How are you? And I do want to talk free agency with you because you you experienced it, didn't you?
4: Yeah, I spent a little bit of. It. I got traded. It was about, about my contract was getting ready to be up. I just got hurt uh, the previous year. I came back I played, and then. Um, you know, they, they they traded me, and then I uh, got to be a free agent and try to test the orders after that. Mm-hmm. But it's it, free agent is crazy. It's uh, it's more crazy now than it was then because, you know, they, they did some shyster things back in the day. Sure. And today it's even more shysterish, but at least you know and the players know <clears throat> what their market value is and can dictate, like LeBron James, dictate where I want to go and where I don't want to go.
3: Mm-hmm. And and it it affected your senior year, right? Wasn't there something going with the Rockets? You were going to be paid a minimum. And correct me if I'm wrong. It was going to be around forty thousand dollars, right? Uh, if you would have come out your senior year and not stayed one more year at UVA, is that right?
4: Yeah, okay. no, that was. Uh, so my senior year, uh, the, the problem was that I did not. I mean, my junior, year, I didn't know I would may may have come come out. I didn't know if I was going to be able to go to the Rockets or Indiana or the 76ers because right. they had traded Moses Malone from Houston to Philly. And that's when they won a the championship with Julius serving that year. So it was up in the air my junior year because I didn't know what I was going to do, but there was some money thrown out as far as if I came out, you know, those agents and and teams were going through the agents saying, you know, you come out, they'll give you this, that and the other. So. I had all kinds of situations going on between my junior and senior year uh, to come out of school for sure.
3: You had a lot of input, right? Not only from Terry Holland, and I'm, and you had some good legal minds as well, but wasn't your mom very important in all the, all the discussions, your mom and dad?
4: Yeah, I mean, Coach Allen actually um, just guided me through, and I mean, every year, just say, you know, you got to do what's best for you. I mean, obviously, we want you to stay, mm-hmm. and I think they were sweating bullets a little bit the first you know, number of years, but... Uh, he, he just kind of was a, a father figure and not putting pressure on me as far as to stay or to go uh, gave me all the resources that I needed to make a decision. One of those years, I just got away from UVA and me, Doug Newberg, Brent Johnson, a bunch of us got in my car and we drove to Fort Lauderdale, just hung out <laughs> for four or five days just to get away from the craziness. Right. And then we went back up to um, the, actually the Philadelphia series and saw that a little bit at that point in time. And so, you know, he, he gave me the free reign to do that. And my mom and dad basically said, you know, let's just do what's best for what you want to do at that point in time. I always would ask them, do we need anything? Are financially stable? And then they always say, well, we worked this many years, we'll, we'll continue to work no matter what you do and how you get it done. So I had very good people around me and then very good advice. And I, I contacted a couple of friends that were lawyers, uh, you know, that, that were around the family, around hometown, but nobody pressured me to do that. That's all good. Today, our discussion is about Kurt Flood and Oscar
3: Robertson and how they changed the sporting world and what's going to happen with the PGA Tour. That's next on Center Court on the Winter Circle Network. During Ralph Sampson's Hall of Fame career, he always believed dedication and teamwork were the two main ingredients for success. Now, with the opening of his restaurant in Charlottesville, the American Tap Room is proving... Great food can happen in an upscale sports bar atmosphere. Ralph Sampson's American Tap Room features local eats, local brews, and traditional favorites like burgers, wings, steaks, and seafood. You'll love the lobster mac and cheese and the bourbon street pasta. There's even a Coach Bennett ribeye. The tap room is now open for lunch from 11 to 4 and the staff serves dinner from 4 to 10. Reservations are accepted, and you can book parties up to 150 people. Contact General Manager Martin Welch at 434-422-8093. Ralph Sampson's American Tap Room, a hometown bar and grill, brought to you by a hometown hero.
1: I think a good team has a good spirit. And vice versa, you know, it's 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 very difficult to say which comes first. I think you have to have the talent, though, uh, in order to have a good ball team. And when you win, you develop a real good, close relationship and good spirit with your ball
2: club. You're listening to Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Once again, here's Ralph and Mac. Welcome
3: back, Center Court on the Winter Circle Network. And today we're talking free agency, what has happened in the world of sports, and. What is happening now and, of course, Ralph's experience with everything. Ralph, I want to talk about Kurt Flood a little bit, um, way before your time, not my time. But Kurt Flood was very, very instrumental in getting baseball and the reserve clause changed. His first court trial was in 1970 in Manhattan. And the path for Curt Flood was not going to be easy.
5: The lawyers for the major leagues would not talk for the cameras. But in the courtroom, they argued that the reserve clause is essential to the future of organized baseball. That without the reserve clause, all the rich teams would get all the star players. But Arthur Goldberg maintains that the reserve clause tying a player to one team for the rest of his life is in violation of the 13th Amendment. That's the amendment against slavery and indentured servitude.
3: No active players testified in his defense. And, uh, you know, he lost in district court, then again in the Court of Appeals. And, Ralph, in 1972, the Supreme Court ruled against Flood and his challenge, and the vote was 5-3. to Now, who would have thought at that time, right, with antitrust laws and the reserve clause, was still in effect? When we were talking first segment about the people walking you through what you uh, are going to experience, whether you, you know, come out of Virginia. Do you remember the words free agency and reserve clause coming into some of the talks and the contract talks that you were facing?
4: Yeah, I mean, you think about that, the statement that the lawyer made there, or whoever was presenting it, that the clauses and the, the most teams with the most money and then the powerful teams and slavery, if you have uh, somebody there for, for their whole career. I mean, the most valuable teams in the NBA today, um, you know, or the NFL or baseball still have a market value and the owners know that Lakers mm-hmm. and Boston and Chicago, uh, all the teams that are, you know, I mean the Houston Rockets sold for 2.2 billion. So, uh, they, they got a powerful team, so they got to make money. They got to have some good players because their value, they value their asset. Mm-hmm. And when they value the asset, they have to understand that that's the way the market is. Right. So you got to have good players in those markets so the owners can compete. But also now they do a lot of revenue sharing. So it's a totally different animal at this point in the NBA or baseball as well. But the free agency is crazy. I mean, I'll give you another story, Mike, with this Kurt Flood thing, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy that he had to go to the Supreme Court and really take it to the highest report in the land that, he, that, that figured out and still got denied. Chris Paul was slated to go to the Lakers with Kobe Bryant. Right. And they didn't let him go. You can't go to the Lakers. You can't have that mm-hmm. powerful team the Lakers. But you can go to the Clippers, which is a rival team across the way, so we make this rivalry happen. So Chris Paul in his career could have played with Kobe Bryant and they could have won five. he could have won some championships by now. So trust me, the NBA, the NFL, the baseball league, they know what they're doing, what they want. And then you gotta take it to court to get that done. And last but not least, Kurt Flood, they had no other active player stand up but they probably would have got ostracized or criticized and everything yeah, else. Yeah. They were scared. You know, yeah. when well, they were scared, to, scared, to, scared to get up there and testify.
3: Yeah. It was just Jackie Robinson and Hank Greenberg at the time, but then, you know, you had your Willie Mazes of the world and, and these people, and they, they just did, you know, Pete Rose at that time, they were just saying, no, it's uh we're going to let Kurt flood. We're going to hang him out to dry. See, he challenged, he challenged the league when he refused to be traded to Philly in 1969. And he wrote a letter to the commissioner, and it resulted he sued major league baseball and then that opened the floodgates for free agency and then it really cost him his career because uh when marvin miller and the union and marvin miller was his lawyer and they were you know trying to bargain at that kurt flood never played again i mean he never played baseball again right. he was and, done. you know yeah. but but what we don't realize and he never had a chance to really return to baseball but what he did was set the tone for sports for the next 50, 60 years. You know, it just brings up the question, is there free agency in golf? Here's, here's Kurt Flood, Ralph, talking about it. And this is from Ken Burns' baseball series. And it's it was such a great series. But here's here's Kurt Flood.
1: I guess you really have to understand who that person, who that Kurt Flood was. I'm a child of the 60s, a man of the 60s. During that period of time, uh, this country was coming apart at the seams. We were in Southeast Asia. Uh, Men were, good men were dying for America and for the Constitution in the southern part of the United States. We were marching for civil rights, and Dr. King had been assassinated, and we lost the Kennedys. And to think that merely because I was a professional baseball player, I could ignore what was going on outside the walls of Busch Stadium. is truly hypocrisy. And now I find that all of those rights that these great Americans were, were dying for, I didn't have in my own profession.
3: And then it was in 76 that pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally agreed to play without a contract an arbitrator gets involved and declared them free agents. And that's that opened up, you know, uh, and right prior to your career now. I mean, you know, you're stepping into Virginia. You're stepping into the spotlight. And that's why I find this whole thing interesting because what happened in the 70s and one Ralph Sampson's getting ready to, to test the waters and find out about, you know, being drafted and playing. And, um, you know, and then staying the four years, Ralph. So you had to be excited at that time to be drafted, but did you really, did you have a pretty good feel? And I know you had good people around you. Did you have a good feel as far as contract situations and heading to the Rockets?
4: Not at all. I mean, I, you know, had a, a good legal team and then a good agent at that point in time that new contracts, but, you know, we, we, we loaded a contract with every possible incentive that we could get our hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the negotiations were easy um, because, you know, being the number one pick and, knowing I was going to be the one pick for three or four years straight. Um, the Rockets came in and they wrote out the red carpet. And then it took us about a couple weeks to get the contract done. Um, but there was all standards then. You got to understand magic and bird and them came in before me. And then Joyce or those guys did it. And, and really I think the Moses Malone thing helped as well, leaving Houston going to Philadelphia because he got t- traded there. So they get mm-hmm. the number one pick. Uh, so a lot of things were going on prior to me coming to the NBA, that kind of position, the free agency there, but it kind of the start of what's going on right now back in that day. So it was fun to be a, a part of it. But when you look back, it's like all these things were going on that you didn't really understand back in the day, but now you do. As long as I've known you, I don't think I've ever asked you this because
3: I lived it uh, being part of the university at that time. People were so wrapped up in the Ralph Sampson story. And I know about the Red Arbach visit to your house and your mom saying, no, you're going – you're going to go to college, but did you feel pressure and did the pressure mount year, sophomore year, junior year, you know, the, after, after you finished
4: the seasons each spring, did you
3: feel pressure mounting? I don't think I felt
4: the pressure. I mean, it's like playing a game. I feel pressure when I play not really. I'm with the ball in my hand, mm-hmm. uh, so I had the decision to make. My parents didn't pressure me, like like I said earlier. Coach Allen didn't pressure me. The teammates, you know, we had fun hanging out. Um, but the big decision was: I really ready. Was I really go to the NBA after my freshman year? No, I was not strong enough mm-hmm. physically or mentally. I probably was ready after my sophomore year, but you know, I looked at the quality of where I was going to play. You know, Indiana or. Uh, a team that I didn't want to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wanted to play for a, a decent team. Uh, you know, that's why when the Lakers and uh, Indiana had to flip, if I would have known that the Lakers would have wanted to flip, I probably would have came out, but I couldn't take a chance on that. Um, you know, the year that Isaiah Thomas went to Detroit, um, th- 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 you know, it was, uh, th- Isaiah was like the second pick. That, that another Indiana made it, had that pick. I didn't want to right. go to Indiana either. <laughs> so it just depends on what any pressure it was, uh, you know, and I was, you know, I was having fun at UVA, uh, you know, people <laughs> had to understand that, you know, I had great coach, Coach Holland, you know, Odom, Larry Naga, Page, right. all started with great coaches, also had great teammates. And, you know, and, and, and even after now, you know, after playing, retiring, and it just of uh, my life teammates, actually very special, Ricky Stokes, Bobby Stokes, you know, good friends, Kid mm. Nealon. Uh, it's going through some uh, some uh, issues medically right now. And then, you know, Terry Gates, Jeff Lamb, you know, Lee Rake, all, all those guys, you know, are still good friends. Right. Rick Carlisle as well. So uh, I don't think you can combine that, you know, in today's world with players that are playing and one and done and having camaraderie with your teammates that we had at UVA.
3: Yeah, so basically you were comfortable.
4: I was fine. Right. I, was, I was having fun. I was comfortable. I was on track to graduate. Uh, we, we we had a good team. We could play and compete for national titles. So it, it wasn't bad.
3: And to think that those Virginia fans were just worrying about something and they really didn't, you know, know.
4: That, that's, uh... and, and it, I mean, <laughs> they had to worry about it up front a little bit. But, at the end, you know, after I decided my second year, okay, great. And the pressure got made, you know, and, and, you know, going to the final four, of my second, well, maybe it's time for them to go, right? Right. Uh, so maybe it was more pressure my third year when I stayed. My fourth year I was coming out anyway.
3: Well, hey, big fella, you cost me about five talk shows a day uh, in the month of May, so I just want want to tell you. And by the way, before we go to break, because we're going to get into the NBA side and the Oscar Robertson rule, in 1947, the NFL replaced the reserve rule with it, and they developed a one-year option. And under that rule, teams had the right to use a reserve clause one time after the expiration of a player contract, and then the option year uh, could not contain the Reserve Clause at that time, and that made players free agents with no restrictions because people say, well, what about the NFL? When did it happen? Well, the one-year option rule was instituted in 1947 and lasted until 1962.
0: You know, and, you know, and really, really drives me. They go back to uh, burn magic a lot. I mean, you know, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, you know, because they did these things. And, I mean, th- you know, there were some great rivalries between Russell and Chamberlain a lot of times, but TV came on then. I think the Oscar option will really change basketball.
2: This is Center Court presented by the Winner's Circle Network in association with the Sampson Family Foundation.
3: Welcome back. Center Court Winner's Circle Network. Ralph Sampson's here and we are talking about free agency and the impact in sports and what is really going on today. Ralph, refre- I'll refresh my memory and yours too, maybe, If uh, but Tom Chambers, was a big part of what happened because before 1988 in the nba you could be drafted or traded now signing with another team after your contract was up it was not really that the the wide open option it is today even if your team was willing to let you go in short there were good chances you weren't going to go anywhere now correct me if i'm wrong um it became official when tom chambers said look If I don't accept it because I feel I can get a better deal, but the league developed that you had to be in the league seven years or more to move on. And you have played through two NBA contracts. And, uh, and we'll talk about the five free agent signings that maybe have affected basketball of all time. But as you were working there with the Rockets, you, you were comfortable in Houston as we use that word again, right? So you weren't going to test the free agent market anyway. How long, how long, what was the length of your first Houston Rocket contract?
4: Our uh, first contract was three years. Okay. And so you yeah, had the first three year contract with the first player to, uh, of a million dollar contract that's coming out, come out of college. It was three years. Uh, and then, you know, with a, with a fourth year option, uh, if we wanted to take that. But uh, then, then, actually, I signed after the third year, I signed another contract with Houston for another four years. And then end up getting traded uh, to Golden State somewhere in that that uh, second second season. I mean, second uh, year of the second contract. Uh-huh. But uh, you look back at all that, and then you mentioned Tom Chambers traded because Tom Chambers, I was playing in one of the All Star games, my fourth or my, actually my fifth All Star game, which I didn't get to play, uh, and uh, I got injured that year. And Tom Chambers was the backup All Star. So he became the All Star, but he won the MVP of the All Star game and took off after that with the Seattle Supersonics. But you also mentioned in the play, unit, a guy named one of the most powerful people in anybody at that point in time was Larry Fleischer. Uh, Uh, He had the union, he had everything together, Uh, and he fought for the players like you wouldn't believe with that. You know, you got to play seven years and you have to do all these things. that uh, that the league wanted to do and didn't really give the players much rights to really control their own destiny. It
3: was 1976 and the NBA had 18 teams now uh, with the merger and they agreed to a class action settlement with the Players Association which ended up changing the balance of power and players now had leverage in dealing with owners, uh, MLB and NFL players soon won uh, similar suits and everything, but it was Oscar Robertson who went after the rule. It was that settlement because it, it eliminated the option or reserve clause. And it was Oscar Robinson who fought for it. And yes, the big O was pretty proud of that legal proceeding. Uh,
0: when I first got involved with it, I didn't know what the hell was going on with it. To be honest, I didn't know where I was going to go, or anything at all. Just know we had a group of people. We had to get some. And during uh-huh. those days when you had player representatives, if you were not a good player, they'd get rid of you. Because the owners didn't like that. And I think I've suffered myself because I got involved with the president's association. And we mm. won the case. It was 78, I believe, something like that. 76. Uh, 76. It, yep. It's just something that had to happen, you know, because things were not right in basketball right. for a long time, you know. It just, for instance, if you were a player on the, on the Minnesota's team, and you said had you played out your option and you didn 't have a contract, they could keep you from playing with any team in the league and that was the real thing uh, that was really the basis of what we were doing and Not only that <clears throat> the league was trying to merge, and we felt that if the league would merge, they would cut down on players salaries and Eventually, they merged anyway and, and the thing about it just went back and forth, and it was just it was just a a, a journey that the owners did not want the players. Do have any control at all of what was going on in basketball? And, you know, and they fought that tooth and nail. And Look at them now. Look look at what they've done, you know. Guys selling teams for a billion dollars.
3: And uh, and that's in an interview with Kevin uh, Garnett. So, Ralph, were you aware then? And, I mean, were players – players were probably discussing this, buses, restaurants, like what was happening at the time in the
4: mid-'80s regarding free agency and what was happening with the NBA? Yeah, I mean, all the time. Uh, I was actually a—I uh, I was a player rep for the Houston Rockets, so I was mm-hmm. in some of those meetings. Uh, and you go All-Star games and meetings, it got heated in those meetings, especially when there was time to renegotiate the uh, collective bargaining agreement with the owners. So it was uh, quite quite interesting to understand that and how it worked out, and you know, and, and knowing Oscar and meeting with him a few times, uh, you know, over the years, and understanding what he what he went through. I mean, just think about it. all the guys today, you know, we, we we cherish the guys that came before us mm-hmm. and all the guys that, you know, play today that's making, you know, a, a boatload of money. We got to thank people like Oscar and what we went through to, to get there because it has evolved over the years and, you know, economy has evolved, the game has evolved, you know, life has evolved, but, um, you know, we laid, they laid the foundation for kind of what's what's happening today. So Oscar was very involved
3: in, with the Players Association at that time, right?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. He was, I mean, I didn't play against Oscar, but he stayed as a staple in the league because he voiced his opinion. And as he said in his comments right there that, you know, because he was a part of the Players Association, some team didn't like him because he had some power. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Well, anyway, Oscar, in continuing the interview with Kevin Garnett, said that there's no doubt his rule changed. The, the landscape, and the culture
0: of basketball. But I think that I like to thank the guys. That there were a lot of guys involved, a lot of player reps who took a lot of heat because of the Oscar Robertson rule. And the players today, I just wish sometimes they would read up and find out what it was, what it was really all about. You know, I was doing, I was doing a, a radio show in, in, in a, at the All-Star game once, and this guy did, had me backstage and said, Oscar, you have about these things and whatnot. And I, asked, I said, do you know about the Oscar Robertson rule? He said, no, I don't. And I got up and left. To left. I said, "You Google it up first. I said, "I'm going to leave." I said, you don't know anything about sports. It's a funny thing that when the NBA talks about what changed the game of basketball, you know, and you know, and really, really, gripes me—they go back to uh, Bird and Magic a lot. I mean, you know, they'll say, "Oh, well, yeah," because they did those things. And I mean, they, you know, there were some great rivalries between Russell and Chamberlain a lot of times. But TV mm-hmm. came on then. I think the Oscar option rule changed basketball.
3: Also, the draft changed. The draft was modified, too. A player could sit out a year and reenter instead of signing with a team that drafted him and high school graduates became eligible, as were the right of first refusal and compensation rules, which had restricted player movement among teams. So, Ralph, at that time then, and I know last week we talked about the mid-'80s and the power, and just like Oscar said, Magic and, and Bird and Jordan and how they changed the game, but no doubt legally and what was happening in free agency was certainly changing right along with it, wasn't it?
4: It was, it was. So, I mean, everybody says Magic and Bird, you know, there is definitely Wilt and Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. And the robbery was there and the game was there, which I think are the greatest area to play. But the, the game of basketball economically was going in the tank teams would lose their money, et cetera, et cetera, because there wasn't much excitement and there wasn't much flair with basketball. Magic and Bird were able to do that with their uh, 1979 or so NCAA uh, win that Magic won. And then they carried it over to the NBA the next year. Mm-hmm. But before that, there was great robberies as well, but the dollars wasn't there. The TV money wasn't there. You know, all the stuff that started happening wasn't there. I mean, I can remember when I was little, I used to watch, you know, the Knicks and and, and uh, the Celtics or the Knicks and the Lakers with Bill Russell. On a Sunday afternoon game of the week, CBS in black and white. It wasn't in color. Now, I was you know, <laughs> eight, 19 years old, and you can only watch those games like that because my mom loved basketball. So, right. uh, and and it was delayed, and the game was dope before you know watching it. So you know it had evolved from the sixties, the seventies, you know, in a big way. Then it went from the seventies to the eighties in a bigger way, and the rest is history after that. And then when did you step in with the Sacramento Kings? Uh, I, I played in Rikers for five and a half, almost six years, um, 80, I'm a set six, 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 six and a half, almost seven years. And then, um, uh, I went to the second, uh, go to state Warriors and the Sacramento Kings after that. Right. And, um, and you know, people don't real,
3: and I don't think people realize that you were fighting foot and knee issues. And, uh, you had a period of, of somewhere a little after 86 or something, you had like three knee operations at, at sometime between 80, 86, 88,
4: 87, 88, something like that. Something like that. I can't remember when, but it was, um, uh, during, uh, six and a half, seven year, I, 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 I the fourth year, I had my first knee operation where I had a buck and handle tear in my meniscus, my left meniscus, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it's funny because, um, um, you know, I didn't trust the NBA doctors because they wanted to just tape you up and let you play. So obviously I came back to UVA and Dr. Frank McHugh, which we thought mm. was the best doctor in the world. Right. And so the technology back then was, oh, just cut it out. Um, you know, and a Houston doctor actually wanted to stitch it up and see if it would grow back, but they didn't have any history that it would grow back. And so, you know, I didn't want to play, play, play. If I'd have stitched it up, I'd have stood out a year probably. Um But again, you know, a meniscus tear is probably the worst injury you could have. You know, you can get ACL, which you can now reattach and all that kind of stuff. Even you look at uh, Clay Clay Thompson that had, you know, all the injuries he's had. He's back to playing as well. So technology has totally changed. But I ended up being bone on bone after that first injury. And then uh, it kept just chunking away, chunking away, chunking away. And then after it affected my right leg where I ended up having three knee operations, two on my left and one on my right uh, before my career was over with. Uh,
3: yeah. Tough time? Was, was it was a tough real... time.
4: It, was, it wasn't fun to go through. Um, it, it was, um, you know, and I was motivated. Uh, it took me, you know, we had gone to the finals the year before and and I wanted to get back to playing. I, so I spent like eight, nine weeks you know, really, really hard at it. Uh, re- rehabbing at UVA in Houston and came back to playing, which is probably too soon. Uh, with an injury like that, but I wanted to play. And uh, the team, you know, they pushed a little bit that like, we got to get back, we got to get back, we got to get back. And I probably should have sit out the rest of the year and got my leg better, better, better you know, uh, than it was. But I wanted to play, and that's what the league was. I mean, we, we played with stitches in their eyes and, you know, broken fingers and <laughs> stuff like that. Today, guys would not play at all because they valued asset with teams. I'm tired of the conversations. I'm tired of all this stuff. I actually do feel bad for him for once. We're here to play and you're talking about some event that happened last week. Well, there's events going to be going on there for the next foreseeable future. I know, but you can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror, can you?
2: The Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation present Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball star Ralph Sampson. Again, here's Ralph and Mac.
3: Welcome back. This is Center Court on the Winner's Circle Network. Mac McDonnell and Ralph Sampson as we hammer out free agency and really the history of free agency and how it's affecting the feud now with the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. The Live Tour decided a Saudi Arabian tour with a a Saudi financial fund to say, hey, we're going to give players not only hefty guarantees. Imagine if you were still playing basketball and somebody said, hey, Ralph, 200 million if you just come be a part of our
4: our league you, you'd probably I mean, you find gotta, a way I mean, right <laughs> you, you, you either find a find a way or you uh, you figure it out I mean I mean uh, Tiger Woods turned down a billion dollars to go play in that tour and some of the players have but some of them have taken it on because they didn't make that type of money that Tiger Woods has made
3: it's been an amazing story to follow for the last couple of weeks because immediately the PGA Tour stepped up and said okay we're going to suspend 17 players who who have said, Hey, we're, we're going to this tour and Greg Norman has some issues. He thinks that the PGA tour has been a money grab, but now guys like Rory McElroy and Justin Thomas are saying, Hey, we support the PGA tour and what it means. And yes, there are. In fact, and I, one footnote to this, I had a PGA member and I won't, I, I won't release his name, but I had a PGA member agreeing to do an interview. How big a story is this? He called me six hours later last night and said, Mac, I'm not going to be able to do it. I just don't feel good about it because of my PGA membership. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. They're friends with the PGA tour. They're two different entities, but the PGA supports, of course, the PGA tour. Anyway, Roy McElroy supporting the tour and thinking that for the guys it is a money grab, but he
5: thinks it's an easy way out. Listen. Friendships aside, is, is there any part of you as a player that looks at those joining as not so much surrendering, but almost recognizing they're not going to be as competitive or can't be as competitive, and do you lose respect for that?
1: <laughs> um, no, I, I I understand. I um, Yes, because a lot of these guys are, you know, in their late forties or, you know, in Phil's case, you know, early fifties. And
3: I think everyone in this room and they would say that say to you themselves that their best days are, are behind them. Um, and that's why I, I don't understand
5: for the guys that are a similar age to me going, because I would like to believe that my best days, <clears throat> my best days are still ahead of me. And I think theirs are too. Uh,
2: so that's where it feels like you're taking the easy way out.
3: The Saudi money, which has affected a lot of people who follow the PGA tour, they don't feel, you know, they feel still very connected. A lady who's who runs the 9-11 Coalition for Families wrote a letter to Phil Mickelson and said, Do you realize you're partnering with people who killed Americans on American soil, 9-11? And so that is part of the the whole controversy. And then when you've got the other players going, well, it's, it's a money grab. It's not a money grab, but the pot, the PGA tour has a policy and a policy board saying you can't play on another tour. Exhibitions are fine. And even though now it's a definition, is this an exhibition or not? You know, Ralph, imagine being an independent contractor. You're you're your own businessman now basically, but imagine if you were with a team and you wanted to go play in an exhibition unless there were rules garnering and saying, no, it would be kind of hard for you not to not to go, right? And especially in a golfer's world.
4: Well, especially in the golfer's world. So the PGA needs to put – put and I'm sure they have some type of agreement with them, like, like you stated, but they need to put them on a contract and pay them a certain amount of money just to be on their tour, which I'm sure they do something have some type of compensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like an NBA, you go to a team, you, 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 you're you the property of that team, basically, and you get a contract. Mm-hmm. Now think about the, the, the guys that play in the CBA or the, 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 the G League or the Gatorade League, whatever they call mm-hmm. it these days. And they go up and they get a 10-day contract. So they're an they, 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 independent contractor at that point. They get a 10-day contract. They may get two 10-day contracts.
5: Mm-hmm. But if
4: they had the rights to go overseas and make money, I mean, everybody wants to play in the NBA. So the PGA right. is like the NBA. Everybody wants to play in the PGA because that's the world's best golf tournament, right? Hmm. But at some point in time, I mean, especially the money that they spin out, somebody's going to jump ship. Uh-huh. and it's going to be either a lawsuit from the PGA to a player or something like that, but somebody's going to jump ship because they're throwing around a whole, whole lot of money. Uh, and, and some guys, as the, as the gentleman just said, if I'm long in the tooth and ladder in my career, and I'm going to try to win another to a PGA, it's, is it possible that I can do that? Or I go make this $50 million. Yeah. You know, and I know it's, it's our rights in the country and Saudi versus United States and nine eleven. I get all that. And Taggart has a great statement about that, but, but, you know, you got you got to weigh it for your future and your family, and, but and the first thing I would look at go say is Mac, I I had a, a a deal with the NBA a guy named Otis song last year, Christmas holidays, mm-hmm. and and they were trying to get and this is why this stuff has come out uh, a deal to go play golf for a hundred thousand dollars for three days in Saudi Arabia, and it was during the holidays, holiday season. Like okay great, it never came to fruition. Uh, but they were pushing that very hard at that point in time. So now it has evolved to where it is today, and it's kind of crazy to see what's happening. What's happening? So there were
3: NBA guys being you were being offered money to go play in Saudi Arabia as part of an NBA golf like uh, yeah, I mean, cele- golf get together. celebrity tour.
4: Exactly. We just go play a captain's <laughs> choice game, whatever. Artist Gilmore, Otis Birdsong, uh, George Beverly, et cetera, et cetera. You know, which they had called me and said, okay. Big fella, We want to go over and play, and they had some. Um, if you look at the notes in there, they had some entertainers and people drop out, and huh. they end up calling the NBA guys and try to see if we want to come over. But it never happened. They never got it off the ground.
3: How about that? How about that? Well, John Rahm, of course, for, uh, U.S. Open uh, champion, and uh, he's supporting the PGA Tour as well. He also weighed in on what's happening with the Live Tour.
2: I've never really played the game of golf for monetary reasons. I play for the for the love of the game, and I want to play against the best in the world. I've always been interested in history and legacy, and right now the PGA Tour has that. There's a there's meaning when you win the Memorial Championship. There's a meaning when you win Arnold Palmer's event at Bay Hill. There's a meaning when you win L.A., Torrey, some of these historic venues. And that, to me, matters a lot. My heart is with the PGA Tour. That's all I can say. Is not my business or my character to judge anybody who who thinks otherwise. And for a lot of people, I'm not gonna lie, those next three four years are worth basically their, their retirement plan they're giving them. It's a it's a very nice compensation to then retire and sail off to the
5: sunset.
3: But this week, with the the U.S. Open being you know just one of the bigger tournaments in a Brookline, it was very historical. Uh, you know, it's part of what the USGA. Uh, that's one of their five charter clubs. and uh, Phil Mickelson, when he held his press conference a week ago, thirty minutes of just questions and it was just a it, it was a uncomfortable uh, press conference scene. But anyway, Mil- Phil tried to explain the free agent part of it and the fact that I'm an independent contractor to have the best of both worlds would be his major preference. My preference is to be able to choose which path. I'd like one or the other or both. I feel that, as I was saying to Ann, I gave as much back to the PGA Tour and the game of golf that I could throughout my 30 years here. And through my uh, accomplishments on the, on the course, I've earned a lifetime membership. I intend to keep that and
5: then choose going forward which events to play and not.
3: So it's going to continue to be uh, just a, a deep dive and discussion. Right now, the Live Tour, I think they've got six more events, if I've got my numbers right. Five of them are going to be in the United States, including their season-ending event, which is going to be in Miami. It's still going to be a conflict. There's still going to be a lot of talk, and it's one of the major stories this summer. Uh, The British Open comes up. Phil's going to go play in the British Open. And so stick with the free agency. And in summary, today bringing to the table the story of free agency and where it sits, the big question is, and I don't know if I have the answer. But the big question is, are these guys free agents? Are they independent contractors? And should they be allowed to play wherever they want to play? And that's the big question, even though the, the PGA Tour has a policy that these guys have signed up with.
4: It's a big uh, big thing, I mean, what a, what a country. United States of America is free, right? So we got some Saudi Arabians that supposedly came over and had 9-11 and killed a lot of Americans, and they come over with a lot of money and and, and do the same thing. So it's kind of, to me, it's kind of but Phil, Phil was, you know, he's later in his career mm-hmm. and he wants to have the opportunity to pick and choose what, i.e., like being a free agent, I want to go and do this, I want to do that. But his history in the PGA Tour is significant. He's got green jackets, right, he's right. played the game at a high level, he respects the game, he's well known, and he's an ambassador of the sport. So, PGA, either you step up a little bit, okay, we should give him something more. Maybe PGA doesn't have as much money as the Saudi Arabians but give him something that's going to help him with his retirement and career, which I'm sure he made enough money to do what he need to do, but he's still also protecting his family, which is what he's doing. They're going to pay him, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. He's going to look at that. He's going to look at that.
3: Yeah. Bryson DeChambeau said, look, I can play less golf, be around my family more and I can concentrate on my businesses in Dallas. And that was Bryson's uh, decision. So, but it didn't help a couple of months ago when the book came out about Phil and he called the Saudis scary, Fill in the blank. Ralph and I come back. This is Center Court on the Winter Circle Network.
5: To get into sportscasting, you need experience just to get your foot in the door. I can't tell you how many times in my career somebody will ask me, how do I get into your business? How do I become a sportscaster? The first thing I ask is, what have you done? Do you have any experience? And the answer is normally nothing yet. It's because they couldn't find a program that provided the real-world experience that you need to get started So I set out to create a program designed for the next wave of sportscasting talent. And my partner was an obvious one. Full Sail University, great track record in entertainment and media, great alumni group, and the ability to evolve as the industry changes. We're offering a bachelor's degree that combines the professional expertise that my fellow sportscasters and I have built our careers on with the technologies shaping the world of sports. To succeed in this business, you have to be ready for what's next. But the core of great sports casting, I don't think will ever change. And this program brings it all together.
3: I see myself myself playing a lot of golf, hopefully creating a lot of great entertainment for golf fans and uh, give myself a lot of free time uh, for myself to be able to do things outside. It's give me the resources uh, go do something in Dallas, uh, build a driving
2: range, build a multi-sport complex, do things that I can do for my foundation, uh, grow my education principle uh, idea that I have and do things in Dallas that I want to be able to do. The Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation present Center Court with Ralph Sampson. Uplift, empower, educate. Welcome back, to
3: Center Court Winner's Circle Network with Ralph Sampson. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I certainly don't want to forget that. And with everything happening next week, you've got Massanutten Ralph Sampson Academy basketball camps, don't you?
4: Back at Massanutten, and uh, this year, starting next week, the twenty first, twenty second, twenty third, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of the next number of weeks, and it's going to be fun. We did it last year; had a ball, and and look forward to this year for sure.
3: What do the kids look for when they come to the camp?
4: Uh, it just depends. There's, there's uh, kids that, you know, want to just have a good time that want to get the experience of the game of basketball at a, at, a, at a good level. There's kids that want to get better. Uh, there's kids that are in between deciding what sport they want to go in. And then you all of a sudden have the two or three kids that may be a little bit more serious about it. So it's fun to see the uh, dimensions of kids and how they react but you know in a camp like that that only may 15 to 20 kids mm-hmm. i have to be very aware of what kid needs what yeah and that's the fun part for me to understand a kid and by the by the end of the second day i kind of know and and we have this we built this relationship and i can push them a little bit harder individually at that point in time.
3: the relationship with your father through the years how did you become such good friends and so close what was it your dad gave you at an early age
4: uh, I mean, I mean, it, which is instilled in me today, my, my both parents my dad, you know, he, he would um, work when we were growing up. He worked from three o'clock to 11 on the second shift, but he would make us breakfast every day and take us to school, go to work. My mom would come home and do the rest of the evening. So I learned at that point in time, his, his work ethic, but also his, his father figure that uh, he got his dressed, he got us up, he motivated us every morning, took us to school and not only took us to school, he took some other cousins to school as well in, in the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. it, it started at a very, very early age with him. And, you know, sometimes he couldn't see, you know, some of the, you know, rec league games and some of the things like that unless he took off. So he, he, he missed some of those at some point in time, but uh, he was there all the way helping out. So happy Father's Day to Ralph L. Sampson Sr. and all the fathers <laughs> out there. Very special man. He'll be 86 this summer. Wow. And, uh, you know, and he, he, he's just, you know, just a good person. Did he ever paddle your backside if he could reach it? Did he ever paddle? Well, my, <laughs> no, he didn't, because uh, his mother, my grandmother Ruby, would not let him do that. And, you know, <laughs> and she lived right down the street, so he got out there. We would run to her, and he would say, "Don't you touch my grandkids!" So yeah, <laughs> it you know. was, it
3: was that simple. Ralph, have a great week. We'll talk next week. Absolutely, thanks. All right, man. For Ralph Sampson, I'm Mac McDonnell, and that's Center Court on the Winner's Circle Network.
2: You've been listening to Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Our podcast is available on the Believe Network at BLEAV.com. Center Court is presented by the Winter Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. For more information, log on to SampsonFamilyFoundation.org. Uplift. Empower. Educate. Teamwork makes the dream work.